I'm not sure how it happened or why it began or even when it began. But somewhere along the way in life, I started doing this thing. I started doing this thing where anytime I was required to take a picture for some sort of identification card, think driver's license, passport photo, visas, even Costco membership cards, I'll be all normal and friendly with the person taking the photo until they count to three and it's time to smile, and then I will just give the meanest mugshot stare that I possibly can. Let me show you a few examples of these. This is from my current passport. And this is from my current driver's license. <laughs> but like I said, I try to do it for gym membership cards or Costco. So here's my Costco card, my current Costco card. <laughs> and I've been doing this for a while and I can't, I can't quite figure out when it started, but the earliest picture I have on an ID of me doing this was my original driver's license photo from when I was 16. Let me show you a picture of that ID. <laughs> the puka shell necklace is classic. <laughs> And listen, I don't know why I enjoy it so much, but it, there's something so satisfying to me about being like just jovial and kind and friendly with the person until they count to three and then just giving them the meanest look you can. And because it, it always like catches them off guard and then they show you the picture and they're like, do you want to do that again? You're like, no, that's exactly what I was going for. <laughs> Here's why I bring this up. We carry around IDs with us all the time. All of you right now in your wallet or in your purse probably have several and we carry them around for one reason. And that reason is this, to prove who we are, to identify ourselves to others who need to know. So when you go through the airport, they look at your picture on your license and make sure that you are the same person on the ID. When you travel internationally, you go through customs, they will look at your passport photo, or in some countries, your visa photo. If you make a return to Costco, I learned this one the hard way last week, they look at the picture on the back of your card and your wife's card is not good enough. They will make you go get your card to make a return. So they look at the picture. It is an easy way. It is a very easy way to identify or verify that we are who we say we are. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. As we continue our series through John's gospel, we have come to a passage that is probably one of the most well-known passages in the gospel of John, say for maybe John 3.16. And in this passage, Jesus is going to give us, and he's going to give the world, a unmistakable, a certain way to determine who we are and that we are who we say we are. In other words, Jesus is going to say this in this passage. The world will know that you are my disciples if you do this one thing well. If we can get this one thing right, then the world will know that we are who we say we are. So John chapter 13, we'll pick it up in verse 31. It says this, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now stop there. The he here in verse 31 is referencing Judas, who had just walked out of the room, and he's on his way to betray Jesus. Shane talked about this last week. It was a fantastic sermon. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. But Judas leaves the room, and now that he has left the room, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says something to them. Look back at the text. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Now, that is a lot of glory and glorification and glorified in, one, in a couple of verses. And anytime you're studying your Bible, you should circle repeated words. But what does he mean here? What does he mean by glory or glorify or glorification? Well, he's talking about his death. He's talking about this moment to do what he came to earth to do. It's, it's arrived. Scholar D.A. Carson describes it like this. He says, it is almost as if 
Now that Judas is gone, the last barrier to the onset of the impending hour has been removed, and Jesus signals the development. God will glorify the Son at once. At once. He continues, verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, there's debate here amongst commentators and scholars as to what Jesus meant. Like, maybe he meant, hey, where I'm going in the garden. I'm going to go pray in the garden. You can't come with me. Or maybe he meant, I'm going to go eventually be with my father, and you can't come with me there. But I think it's the third option, based on the flow of the text, which is this. I'm going to the cross, and this is something only I can do for you. You can't do this for yourself, and I am going to be the one that does it on your behalf. And then in verse 34, Jesus says something that would have been so radical, so jarring to the original audience. Look at verse 34. He says this, a new commandment I give to you. Now we read that and it doesn't like bring up any emotions for us, but if we were the disciples, you'd be thinking like, Jesus, you can't just make up a new commandment. Like we already have the commandments. Like I imagine the disciples probably thought, whoa, Jesus, time out. We already have like the 10 commandments. To which Jesus goes, I know, this is a new one. But Jesus, we already have like 613 other commandments in the Old Testament. I don't know if you spend a lot of time in your Old Testament, Jesus, but there's like a lot of other commandments in there. And Jesus goes, no, this is a new one. But Jesus, the Pharisees and the rabbis, you know this, they like, they teach about new commandments to protect us from breaking the old commandments. And Jesus goes, yeah, I have a new one for you. Well, Jesus, just like a year ago, someone asked you about the greatest commandment, and you said the greatest commandment is to love God and love others. Yeah, guys, this is a new commandment. And I bet they were shocked. Like, I imagine Peter shouted like, hey, guys, gather around. Jesus is going to give us a new commandment. John, make sure you write this down. It's a new one. Here's the new command. That you love one another. And they all stop, and they look confused. Jesus, that isn't new. Leviticus 19, 18 says that, to which Jesus may have replied, I'm not done yet. Keep listening. Here's the new part. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Just, that's a big word in the text, just as I have loved you. That is how you are to love. Perhaps he looks around the room and he goes, Matthew, Matthew, remember what you were doing when we met for the first time? And Matthew goes, yeah, I was a tax collector. No, I know, I know that was kind of like your title and that's what your role was, but what did you do as a tax collector? Well, as a tax collector, I essentially stole from all my Jewish brothers and sisters, lined my pockets, sent money back to Rome so that they could continue to oppress us. Yeah, that's right, Matthew. And, and what did these guys, all these guys that are standing here right now, what did they think of you? Well, they hated me because I was essentially stealing from them to send money back to Rome. But Matthew, what did I do for you? Well, you loved me. And you welcomed me into the family like a friend, even like a brother. And Jesus says, that's right, Matthew. Go love like that. Maybe he looks around the room and he goes, hey, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, remember what you were saying about me when you first heard of me? You're kind of you're talking trash about my hometown. Do you remember that? Like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel probably thought, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't bring that up. But yep, I, I remember it very vividly. And Nathaniel, what did I do for you? Well, you welcomed me in, and you cared for me, and you, you didn't bring it up until just now, which is kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> and Jesus says, that's right. Why? Because love keeps no record of wrongs. And so I loved you. 
And you ought to go love like that. Maybe he looked at the whole group of disciples and said, hey guys, remember that time we were out for a, a walk and I got kind of tired, so I stayed back and I sent you into town to get some lunch. And when you came back, you saw me talking to a Samaritan woman. And, and at the time, you probably thought that was crazy because Jewish men shouldn't talk to Samaritan women. But I did. Do you remember how I cared for her, how I loved her? And do you remember what happened to her? And they go, yeah, Jesus, her life was changed forever. In fact, the whole town was changed because of the way you loved this woman. And Jesus says, yes, you should love like that. You guys, remember when we were in the temple courtyard and we were hanging out and I was teaching and the Pharisees dragged this woman in who was caught in the midst of adultery? And then the religious leaders wanted to stone this woman? Do you guys remember that? And they go, oh, Jesus, we talk about it all the time when you're not around. We talk about how dumb those guys looked when they had to drop those rocks and walk away. And Jesus goes, I did that because I loved this woman. You go love like that, just as I have loved you. That's how you are to love. Now, we don't know for sure, but I have to imagine Jesus thought or maybe even said, like, if you guys thought you've seen love over the last few days, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because in the next few hours, I am going to receive the beating that you should have received. And I'm going to die the death on the cross that you should have died for your sin. And I'm going to raise from the grave, conquering death and hell. And I'm going to do all of those things because I love you so much. These guys are probably stunned, but Jesus doesn't give them time to think about it. He continues, verse 35. He says this, by this, and I imagine he pauses. John, be sure to write this down. This is really important. By this, by your love for each other, by loving each other the same way I have loved you, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, the entire world will know who you are and whose you are and what you have been called to, not by how often you read your Bible, not by your ability to obey all the rules, not by your giftedness, not by your intellect, not by your church attendance. The world will know by your love. And we're going to stop there this week. We'll pick it up in the next passage next week. But I want to ask the question, so what? So what? How do we apply this to our life? I want to point out four things we see in this story. In this passage, we see a staggering command, a simple metric, a sobering implication, and a stunning reality. How's that for alliteration this week? <laughs> Side note, they teach you this in seminary, but the difference between a good sermon and a great sermon is alliteration, actually. <laughs> also the Holy Spirit, but mostly alliteration. So here we go. First point, a staggering command. Here's the command. Love one another just as I have loved you. And again, it's not staggering that we ought to love one another. It's the how we ought to love one another that's staggering. It's the method and manner by which we are to love, namely, just as Jesus loved us. Because this method is not the world's method. The world back then and the world now would say, well, you should love those who are lovely or easy to love. But certainly not the unclean or the outcast or the enemy. But Jesus loved differently than the world. He loved those whose society had turned their back on. He loved those who hated him. He loved those who had betrayed him. He loved those who were difficult to love. And he didn't just love them for a moment. He didn't just love them when he had extra time in his schedule or when it was convenient for him. He didn't just love them when he had extra money to spare. He loved them at all times. And the text says earlier in this chapter, he loved them till the end. And we have been commanded to do that for each other. So what might this type of love look like in this faith family? 
What might it look like? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to go on to say in another letter that this type of love is patient, it's kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. He'll go on and say, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Can you imagine if this was how we were to describe our faith family? If this faith family was defined by this type of love? If the worst thing that people out there could say about this church family was that we were too patient, too kind, too forgiving, too loving, that's the type of community I want to be a part of. And I'm guessing it's the type of community you really want to be a part of. And here's the scary thing. The scriptures teach that our willingness and ability to love others with this kind of love is the way we measure our love for God. Let me say that again. The scriptures teach, and we'll talk about this in point two, our willingness and ability to love others with this kind of love is the way we measure our love for God. Second point. A simple metric. A simple metric. Jesus gives us our marching orders to love, and he gives us the method by which we are to love. But then John grabs hold of this idea and later is going to write a letter we call 1 John, and he's going to say that it's actually now the metric by which we measure our love for God. He says it like this in 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Don't brush past that. He doesn't say, if you don't love others, you don't love God. He actually takes it a step further. He says, if you don't love others, you don't even know God. In other words, our love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by our love for other people. A couple of weeks ago, I took a brief international trip to Texas. And I was, <laughs> I was at a pastor's conference down there. It's a small group of pastors. And these are some of the, the brightest, most gifted pastors I've ever been around. And I have no idea how I sneak into it, but they let me in and I get to learn from these really brilliant men. And while I was there, I asked several of them this question. I said, on a scale from one to 10, how would you rank your love for God in this season that you are in? And I wasn't so much concerned with whatever number they gave me. I was more interested in the second question, the follow-up question to the first. Because once they gave me a number, my response was, why did you rate yourself with that number? And almost every answer had something to do with either sin habits or spiritual disciplines. Let me explain. I would ask, if they gave themselves kind of a lower number, I'd say, why did you give yourself that number? And they said, well, I gave myself a lower number because I haven't been reading my Bible enough outside of just prepping for a sermon, or perhaps a sin struggle, like I'm really struggling with this particular sin I can't seem to shake. Or they would give themselves a higher number. They would say, I gave myself a higher number because I've just been killing it at Sabbath lately. Like I've been really good at Sabbath. Or I've been practicing silent prayer in the morning before I start doom scrolling Twitter. So I gave myself a higher number. But here's the thing. Not one of them, not one of them used their love for others as a metric for how their love relationship with God was going. And I'm not knocking these men. I wouldn't have used it either, and my guess is neither would you. But according to Jesus and John, 
Spiritual disciplines, sin habits, are not the right metrics. The true metric for our love of God is how well we love others. Said differently, your love of others is directly indicative of your love for Jesus. You can say you love Jesus all you want. You can declare your love for Jesus, but if you do not extend patience, kindness, humility, gentleness, forgiveness to those in this room, you don't love God and you don't even know God. And you say, well, Justin, that sounds really harsh. It does. And I'm just quoting the Bible. This isn't Justin's opinion. This is the scriptures. And in case it hasn't been made clear yet, it's not enough to just say, I love others. It has to be active, an active love. Our love, if it's going to look anything like the love of Jesus, should be demonstrated, not simply declared. It should be demonstrated, not simply declared. In fact, I would say this, declared love without demonstrated love is a distortion of what Jesus is saying here. We have to demonstrate this type of love. So yes, love with your thoughts and your words and your prayers, but also with your actions and with your time and with with your money. And when we do this, the text says, something incredible happens. Something incredible happens, which leads to our third point. A sobering implication. Here's the implication. The world will know who and whose we are based on our willingness and ability to love each other. When we love, not just in word, but in action and deed, the world will take notice. And I read that the first time, and I go, Jesus, that's a lot of pressure. You're putting a lot of trust in us. And I imagine Jesus goes, I know. Don't let me down. Go love. So let me ask the obvious question, like, how are we doing as a church? It's worth an honest assessment. Jesus, what he said here is true. And because it's true, Getting this right matters more than anything else we are currently working on as a church. Let me say that again. Jesus is right. Okay? That's not up for debate. The world will know by our love. And because that's true, figuring out how to love one another well is more important than anything we will ever do as a church family. Said differently, we could have the best children's ministry in the Portland metro area. But if we don't have love, we could have the best preaching team in the state of Oregon, but if we don't have love, we could give away more money to those in need around us than any other church or social agency in Hillsborough, but if we don't have love, we could engage in works of justice and mercy nonstop, but if we don't have love, Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gifts of prophecy and if I understood all, the, all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Brothers and sisters, love is what will transform this place we call home. Love. Let me explain it to you like this. Um, Way back in 1967, there was a movie that came out based on a Christian book, and the book was about a parable. The story of the parable, the story of the movie, was called The Gospel Blimp. How many of you have ever read or watched the movie The Gospel Blimp? Anyone in the room? There was only one in the first gathering. It's a real movie. You can go to Amazon and buy it. It was in color. 
So <laughs> it's about these families. I'll save you the time so you don't have to spend the money on it. It's about these families who all live in the same neighborhood. And they're all sitting in their backyard one night and they're having a barbecue. And they're talking about how much they love Jesus and how much they want their entire neighborhood to come to faith in Christ. The problem was there was at least one neighbor family that weren't Christians. And this is one of my favorite parts of the movie. They knew they weren't Christians because they had seen this couple drinking beer and playing cards. And that was the dead giveaway that they do not love Jesus. So they start brainstorming ways like, how are we going to evangelize this particular couple? And as they're having this discussion around the fire, they look up and there's a blimp flying overhead. And it dawned on them, we will buy a blimp. And we'll paint scripture verses all over the blimp. We'll put neon lights on it. We'll put a big megaphone on it and play our pastor's sermons over the megaphone. We'll drop tracks, like gospel tracks, over local events like fairs and football games and parades. And doing that will lead these people to Christ. So they do what most good church people do. They set up a committee. And one of the people becomes the chairman of the gospel blimp committee. And they put all their time and all their energy and all their effort into raising money, buying a blimp, and seeing this vision accomplished. Well, they get the the blimp built, they start track bombing some local events. One of the scenes is of a local high school football game, and the kids see stuff falling from this blimp, and they think it's candy, and they all run over to grab the candy, and they realize it's just little Jesus saves pamphlets. And so they get all frustrated and throw them away. In another scene, the lost neighbor, the one who, you know, drinks beer and plays cards, comes up to one of the Christian neighbor's door, and he knocks on the door, and he says, hey, my wife and I were going to go out of town for the weekend. We were wondering if you and your wife wanted to come spend the weekend with us. And the person said, sorry, I can't. I'm too busy working on the blimp. So he stays to work on the blimp. So months and months go by, and they start to run out of money. They're getting bad press, and it looks like this gospel blimp dream is coming to an end. And so they get everyone back together again, and they're talking about how to wrap this ministry up. And guess who shows up at their door? The non-believing neighbors. And they have an announcement for the group. They announce very proudly that they have placed their faith in Jesus and are now following him as Lord and Savior. And a celebration erupts. The people start cheering and they're high-fiving. They hoist the chairman of the Gospel Blimp Committee on their shoulders and they're saying, it worked, it worked. And when the celebration finally dies down, they want to know, what finally did it? Was it the neon lights? Was it the pastor's sermon over the loudspeaker? What was it for you? And the neighbors respond, actually, the Gospel Blimp's been pretty annoying. The lights have kept us up at night. The, the sermon is really loud. We've had to like rake tracks out of our backyard like they're leaves. It's been really annoying. And they go, well, how in the world did you become a Christian then? And they said, well, there's these other neighbors that are Christian. And they aren't part of your gospel blimp committee. But they noticed when my wife got sick and had to go to the hospital. And so they started bringing meals to us. It started caring for us. And we noticed how they loved us. And we noticed how they loved everyone on this street. And we didn't know what they believed, but we know we wanted part of that. And so they shared the gospel with us, and that's how we became Christians. And then the movie ends. (laughs) That's how it ends. Now, the point of the story is obvious, and it speaks volumes to the way we ought to do church today. The point is that we as churches and as Christians can get so caught up in the sideshow of Christianity, the programs, the practices, the tasks, the to-do list, all of which are not bad things. But we get so caught up in those things that we miss the simple, profound, prophetic call to simply love 
others the way Jesus loved us. Brothers and sisters, I am convinced that if we can get this one thing right, the entire world will be transformed. We just have to get it right. But here's the thing. We will never be able to love like this until we first understand the magnitude of something Jesus declared in this passage. And that leads to our fourth and final point. Fourth, a stunning reality. There's a stunning reality in this text. And when you hear it, it's going to sound too simple. You're going to think, this can't be what the sermon is about, Justin. It's going to sound maybe even a little patronizing if you've been around church for a long time. But I promise you, it is a stunning and even scandalous declaration. Okay, you ready for it? You are loved by Jesus. You are loved by Jesus. And I I don't mean y'all are loved by Jesus, though that's true. I mean you, brother, sister, you are loved by Jesus. You are the object of his affection. You are the one for whom he stepped out of heaven. You were the joy that was set before him. You were in his mind's eye as he hung on the cross. You were the recipient of his resurrection promise. You were the one to whom he sent his Holy Spirit to reside. But here's what I've seen time and time again. Many self-proclaiming Christians don't really believe this in their bones. They say they believe it. They believe it in what I would say is like an adolescent sort of way, like Jesus loves me, this I know. But they don't really believe it. And maybe they believe it for other people, but for some reason they just don't believe that anyone could love them that much. But brothers and sisters, it's true. Jesus loves you so much. I told you it sounds too simple. And it is a transforming reality if you actually believe it. Here's what's even crazier. Here's what makes this truth even more potent. We did nothing to deserve or earn that love. Nothing. Paul describes it this way in Titus chapter 3. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Brothers and sisters, in the words of Dr. Tim Keller, you are far worse than you ever dared to imagine. And yet, at the same exact moment, you are more loved by Jesus than you ever dared to hope. And if you could believe that, it would change everything in your life. And unless or until you realize this glorious truth, this stunning reality, you will never be able to love others to the extent that Jesus commands you to. Because if you don't understand the way in which God loves you, then how could you possibly love others just as Jesus loved you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you. Believe it. It'll change your life. But the text says it won't only change your life, it'll change the lives of everyone sitting in this room. And because of what Jesus said, it'll change the entire world.